Welcome to the Josias podcast. My name is Pater Edmund Waldstein, and today I am joined by our sub-prior here in the Cistercian Abbey of Stift Heiligenkreuz, by the very reverend Father Elred Maria Anthony John Howard Davies. Yes. Welcome, Father Sub-Prior. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you. It's actually the first time I've had one of my confers from Heiligenkreuz on the Josias Golly. podcast. And the music that we just heard was by Henry Purcell. It's from the funeral sentences for the funeral of Queen Mary II. And I chose this music because, uh, of course, the topic for our conversation will be Queen Elizabeth II and her death and imminent funeral. But perhaps, Father Subprior, before we talk about Queen Elizabeth, perhaps you could introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners. Uh, where were you born, Father Sapra? I was born in a country which no longer officially exists, Nyasaland Protectorate in Central Africa. Splendid. It's now called Malawi, the Republic of Malawi. Excellent. And uh, your father was an Englishman? My father was an Englishman, born in London, and he was in the colonial service, which is why we were living there. And your mother was from Germany. My mother was German, that's right. Excellent. And how long did you live in Yasaland? Well, I spent almost the first eight years of my life there. Altogether, my father lived there for 12 years, 1951 till almost the end of 1963. And then we moved away. Independence came the following July, 1964. And where did you move then after? We moved to the crown colony of Mauritius in the Indian Ocean, where he had another job. Splendid. And we lived there for three years before finally coming to England. And then uh, you lived in England? I lived in England, yes. And... My parents lived to a great age, all, both of them almost 90, when they passed away. And then I was looking, I felt that I had a monastic vocation, and I started to look in the German-speaking world, with which I was so related through mother, and with which I was so familiar, And I found Heiligenkreuz. I had discovered Heiligenkreuz through the visit of Pope Benedict XVI in 2007. Wonderful. So, Father Subprior, Queen Elizabeth II, maybe you can say a little bit about what you thought about her when you were a child growing up in the Crown Protectorate. Yeah, well, she was always there. She was our queen wherever we were and greatly loved. And I think most people loved her. They admired her, certainly. And even people who didn't like the monarchy admitted that her conscientious dedication to duty couldn't be denied. But most of us loved her as a person. Yeah, I've, as many people have said that 
and I feel this too, but I'm kind of surprised at how moved I am by her death. Of course, as a Catholic, and I'm named for St. Edmund Campion, who was put to death by her namesake, Queen Elizabeth yes. I, right? So as Catholics, we, the, the English uh, kings and queens have not only a, a good role in our history, so to speak, um, but uh, it seems to me that although England in a way, plays a key role in the breaking up of the unity of Christendom at the beginning, and in a way is at the spearhead of modernity. Nevertheless, England still, uh, maybe even because of that, because it's the very first spearhead of modernity, it preserves more of medieval Christendom than uh, even most Catholic countries. So in France, when the revolution finally comes, it's much more comprehensive than, say, the Glorious Revolution in England um, and sweeps everything away. Whereas in England, you still, when we look at the Queen and when we look now at the ceremonies of her funeral, we still have an inkling of, of uh, medieval Christendom, uh, an image of temporal power, temporal authority as being granted by God and as sort of inspiring reverence on that account. Yes, and the, the governments which in the course of the centuries wanted to take away all the sovereign's power knew that the people of the country loved the monarchy and so they never dared to take it any further. And some people have described England or the United Kingdom as a republican monarchy or as a, a republic with a monarch at its head because in practice the power is in the hands of the elected parliament but the symbolism of a Christian monarchy all remains so for example when the new parliament is inaugurated every year opened by the sovereign the Lord Chancellor hands over the speech to be read out from the throne in the House of Lords, and he does so kneeling. Wonderful. So the symbolism is all there, that power comes from above. And even after a general election, the new Prime Minister, as we saw last week, cannot begin to operate until the Sovereign has invited him, or in this case her, to form a government. Yes. So everything is really in the hands of the king. Yeah, St. Thomas Aquinas says that the best form of government is a mixed form that includes elements of the different forms of government, of monarchy, of aristocracy, and of polity, or democracy, as we would say today, I suppose. Um, and in the Middle Ages, I think you see that the balance is, uh, there's really that balance between the three elements. Uh, the monarchical element represented by the king, the aristocratic by the House of Lords, which includes lords temporal and lords spiritual, the bishops and the great abbots of England also sat in the House of Lords, and even priors, Cluniac priors, uh, but no sub-priors. <laughs> 
Uh, and then, of course, the House of Commons representing sort of the, uh, the democratic or political element of the Constitution. But of course, in a way, this balance has somewhat been lost, right? Because in practice, the House of Commons has usurped much of the power of the House of Lords and of That's the Crown right. itself. Yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, the government is always called His Majesty's government, and the opposition is called His Majesty's loyal opposition. So the appearance of an absolute monarchy remains, that everything is His Majesty's, and everything is done in his name, and every law which the commons passes has ultimately to receive his stamp of approval. In fact, it must receive his stamp of approval, and in a sense he has no choice but to approve whatever they pass. In private, he can say whatever he likes to the prime minister and even express his disapproval, but that depends on each individual monarch. It was said of the Queen that she liked to avoid all confrontation, but she was an excellent listener and always knew what was going on. That's wonderful. Did, did you ever see the Queen? Only in a carriage passing by in London. I think an Arab sheikh was on a state visit. Wonderful. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It seems to me that um, modernity is sort of characterised by what Max Weber calls the iron cage of imminence. It's sort of everything is closed off from any reference to God and to the fact that there's anything beyond uh, what we ourselves do and make. And it results in kind of this, this horribly gray, empty um, desert, the wasteland, as T.S. Eliot calls it, of modernity. And to me, uh, what Queen Elizabeth really does... Um, really was able to do through her, through being queen, even though she didn't have, as you said, uh, any choice but to approve what her uh, parliaments um, laid in front of her, as it were. She had no real uh, power to, to direct the political, uh, the political affairs of her realms. Nevertheless, she did give people an inkling that there's something more, there's something beyond the iron cage of modern imminence. There is some uh, divine source of human life and of human political life. Quite so. And I think that many people, although it's no longer politically correct to use such terminology, many people would have regarded her as the mother of her peoples because she presided, reigned, over this big family of nations, which we used to call the British Commonwealth. Now it's usually just called the Commonwealth. And she was the head of the Commonwealth, as Charles now is. And so by having one person, in this case a motherly figure, presiding over everything, a family spirit was nurtured. Yeah, a spirit of, of reconciliation, too. Yes. If you compare, I think, the, the, the fate of the British colonies with the fate of the French colonies, I think there's much more acrimony in the French colonies between the metropolis uh, and the colonies during the period of so-called decolonization. And I think it might be in part because uh, among the British colonies you had 
Queen Elizabeth, who, as you say, is able to foster the spirit of unity and even of reconciliation in some Certainly. And, of course, it's very interesting to observe that the king, her successor, is still the king of Canada, the king of Australia, the king of New Zealand, and of quite a few other countries. Yes, indeed. There are, of course, um, one sort of <laughs> exception to the, the reign of goodwill, in a way, is in Northern Ireland, where you have, I think, maybe the only part of the British Empire uh, that where there was really a very strong anti-royalist feeling was in Northern Ireland, because you have this division between the Protestants and the Catholics, and they sort of, uh, through, through that opposition, they sort of um, drive each other to extremes in this way, so that the Catholics there became kind of extreme Republicans, which I think is understandable, but also kind of a pity. Well, it is very tragic, the history of Ireland altogether, and it's a very black uh, mark in the history of England, certainly. I think most people didn't realise how oppressive we, to use a simple expression, were in Ireland against the Catholics. But when Ireland finally became a republic outside of the British Empire, I think it was 1949 or 50, the then Prime Minister of Southern Ireland, Mr. Costello, said that this was nothing against the person of the king, the queen's father. It was because for Ireland the symbol of the crown was just unacceptable in the light of all this uh, tragic history. Right. But it wasn't against the person of the king whom they liked. Yes. And in a way, the worst English oppressor in Ireland was Oliver Cromwell, who famously was a regicide. Yes. <laughs> and we had a, a wonderful curate in our parish many years ago, Father Patrick Durkin. He was a Salvatorian father. And when he was a little boy growing up in County Mayo in the far west of Ireland, the schoolmaster in the national school said to the children, Cromwell said to us, to hell or to Connaught, that was for the Catholics, either go to hell or go to the poorest part of Ireland. And now he's in hell and we are in Connaught. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. Queen Elizabeth herself uh, seems to have been really a genuinely devout Protestant Christian. She certainly was. No one knows in Anglican terms exactly what her churchmanship was, but it was generally thought that she was what is called low church, so rather evangelical yes. in her belief. And, for example, during her reign, she invited the famous Billy Graham to Buckingham Palace, maybe on more than one occasion, to give the royal family a retreat. Wow, that's very interesting. And she never made any secret of her own devotion to our blessed Lord. When she was 90, she was invited to write the foreword to a book which was published in her honour. And in the foreword, she said, Jesus is the king I serve. And I think we always knew that was yeah. her spirit. Yeah, that's really beautiful. 
And she, she died, of course, in Scotland, uh, where the, the Church of Scotland is, of course, Presbyterian. But I suppose for a low church Anglican like her, it was easy to, to worship in the Presbyterian Church as well. Well, the tradition is that when the monarch stays at Balmoral Castle, he or she always worships in the parish church, which I think is crazy. So yes. that's the Kirk. Indeed. And there was, uh, when, when she died, there was, of course, uh, a service in St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh. Um, and I thought it was, it was a remarkable thing that the, the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Edinburgh and St. Andrews also read one of the lessons at that service in the Presbyterian Church. Not something that would have happened in the 17th century. Unthinkable, <laughs> yes. Yes, quite remarkable. You lived in Scotland too for a while, didn't you, Father Sopra? I lived in Scotland for about three years, yes, because I tried my vocation as a Benedictine monk at Pluscadon Abbey. Pluscadon Abbey, that is a Benedictine Abbey, which I think Bened- originally yes. goes back to an Anglican monastery that converted to Catholicism. Is that That's right? right. Originally, this Anglican community of monks lived on the island of Caldy, off the South Wales coast, off the coast of Pembrokeshire, near the little town of Tenby. Caldy Island is now home to a community of Trappist monks. But this community of Anglican monks was very Catholic in its way of thinking and of worship. And the then Bishop of Oxford, Charles Gore, felt that they were too Roman and he wanted them to reduce this side of their activities. So, for example, when they celebrated what they would have called the Mass, they used the same form as the Catholics and they adored the Blessed Sacrament, for example. And he just felt, even though his own way of thinking was very close to theirs, that they went too far And they then held a triduum of prayer in 1913 to decide what to do. And most of the community decided to convert to Rome. And just maybe four monks remained within the C of E. And these Catholic monks, as they became, were led by the abbot. Aylred Carlyle was his name. Your namesake. Yes, yes. You're really named for Elred of Riva. That's right, yes. As I suppose he was. As he was, yes. (laughs) And he then, once he became a Catholic, although he was their abbot, he went to the Abbey of Maritsu in Belgium to do a novitiate. And Maritsu belonged to the Boyronese congregation. Right, the Boyronese congregation founded by Maros and Placidus Volta. That's right. And so he brought, after this novitiate in Maritsu, he brought some of their customs into the community, which still, which are still observed to this day. And um, the community eventually left Caldy Island 
and established itself in Gloucestershire at what became known as Prinich, Prinknash is the spelling, Prinich Abbey. And then after the Second World War, there was such a glut of vocations through the ex-servicemen who wanted to become monks that Prinich was able to make two new foundations, one at Farnborough Abbey near London and the other in Scotland at Pluscadon. And that's how this all developed. Splendid. Well, Father Sapraya, let's pray, continue to pray for the conversion of England, that Pluscadon and uh, Caldy might be predecessors of the conversion of the whole of England and the English Church to Rome. Thank you so much for joining us well, on the Discipline Podcast. Thank you for podcast. having me. And uh, we will pray also for the repose of the soul of, of the Queen. Of course, we know ex ecclesiam nulla salus, but uh, presumably she wasn't entirely at fault for being a Protestant since she, that's the way she was raised. She was brought up to be a faithful member of the Church of England and she had no reason to look elsewhere. I think that's what we can say. And now she's in God's hands. Amen. So-